0: Hello and welcome to the Mangal Media Show. I am Mangal Media Editor-in-Chief, FL Levant. To learn more about us and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website www.mangalmedia.net. Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. Listeners who like fiction, can also buy our illustrated short story, Guide to Every City. Written by myself and illustrated by Ala al Guide to Every City is a guide for a fictional city inhabited by insects. The three different species of insect in every city, hopsters, sloggers, and buzzies live segregated lives on their isolated neighborhoods. The book not only presents a commentary on social divisions within urban life, it also satirizes contemporary travel writing. The fictional author of the guide, Steve McCracker, is a thoroughly unrelatable hipster who genuinely believes that the rest of the world did not exist until he discovered it for some over-designed travel magazine. You will laugh, you will cringe, in the words of Steve, you will never be the same again. In this episode of the Mangal Media Podcast, I am joined by Ayman Makaro to talk about the short comic book him and Hisham Rifai have produced for Mangal Media. Our Letter Home A Letter Home, which will be released later this month, is a deeply personal medley of emotions about Beirut, loss and dislocation. Ayman Makarem and Hisham Rifai walk a delicate line between yearning and indignation for the home they have left behind. The beauty of this illustrated short story is its bravery in tackling irreconcilable emotions without falling into rose-tinted nostalgia or crippling cynicism. The ease and harmony with which the words and pictures blend together is a testament to the outstanding creative chemistry between Makaram and Rifai. Um, I'm here with Ayman Makaram, and we are going to be talking about a very exciting book that we are just about to release. Um, I still don't have like an actual release date yet, but I think we're looking at somewhere in early April. Uh, Hello, Ayman, how are you?
1: Hi, I'm doing all right, how about you?
0: Good, good. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your uh, previous collaborations with Hisham and the kind of things that you're working on right now as well?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So yeah, hi, my name is Ayman McAdam. I'm a, a writer. Um, with a background in screenwriting, but I've mostly lately been tending towards comics who I've been collaborating with Hisham Rifai. um he's the graphic illustrator, he's the drawer, he's as some people call the artist um and yeah, we've been working on comics for about two years now, uh mostly political but oftentimes very personal comics, obviously the two um relate to one another. Um, and yeah, that's
0: about it. Um, so the book that we're going to release together, it's called A Letter Home. And I quite I love the title because the book that's literally <laughs> what it is, it is a letter home. And there's a lot of elements in it that make it kind of come to life as an authentic letter home, like, even the 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 sort of like quote-unquote character that you write the letter to is a real person uh yeah and maybe you can yeah i was just going to ask maybe you can tell us a bit about how you got started with this project
1: um no yeah so basically i've only just left lebanon um a few months ago and as i'm sure you know the situation is just Horrendous at the moment. And uh, the last few years being there was just horrible. And leaving wasn't very easy, but obviously it's, you know, to me, the right choice. And uh, everyone would agree. But obviously that comes with some issues and a lot of longingness. A lot of, you know, I I have a lot of time now that I'm here in Vienna, where like nothing really happens on a day to day basis um, to really reflect and, and, I would say look back on, but honestly, the thing that I've most experienced is this inability or like refusal to think uh, because and or to think about the things we went through and the things that we survived and the things that have that happened. And especially now that I'm here, I just wanted to forget. And what has been happening to me a lot, I've written a lot about this on my Twitter, and it ended up a lot in the, the comic is I've been dreaming a lot. And I do remember my dreams and very, very intense dreams. Like almost every single dream I I dream of the Israeli jets and not just the Israeli jets, the Israeli jets shooting at me. You know what I mean? This really intense uh, exaggeration of the dreams of the, you know, sort of reality. Um, But yeah. And so I sort of found myself whether I liked it or not being confronted with those memories and those images. And sometimes there were nice dreams. Like I was able to see friends and like be with my mother and just kind of experience things that oftentimes I, I just don't feel like I have the emotional or psychological space at the moment yet to contemplate. And so, yeah, I decided to write this and I'm sure you remember the first draft was a very kind of angry poem. Um, not just angry at the situation but angry at this kind of nostalgia which i know we we as arabs and as artists really have a problem with and like there it's a big discourse i was re- recently listening to an episode of fire these times with joya you with ah, i forget her name but yeah they talked a lot about how nostalgia is almost like a dirty word and I remember the first draft. Did I felt that, and I felt myself moving through those cycles, and because I've been feeling these things and experiencing this sort of disconnect from home, but also disconnect from where I am at the moment, and I found myself reading, you know, Mahmoud um, Darwish, and listening to Maksoum or whatever, and nothing about these things in themselves, but sort of what am I doing, you know. Um, And then find myself watching a lot of really bullshit Lebanese nostalgia stuff. And obviously, Lebanese have a very bad experience with nostalgia, especially with, you know, how much shit we've gone through and how this idea of resilience as well is a dirty word because we're tired, you know, we can't anymore. I don't want to... I can't, but I don't have an answer for what else, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the first draft... um, (coughs) I think i had something about you know fuck the phoenix about wanting to to piss it dry or something like what what's that bird ever done for me um but then I, I sat with it a bit longer and i really started to think like more in depth about nostalgia about what else we really have about how better to think of nostalgia because like at first i was sort of like wanting to get rid of nostalgia but now i'm constantly confronted with almost the necessity of the situation i'm in where it's just that's just you know i'm not happy where i am
0: it's also quite Uh, kind of um revealing that it's almost kind of like a therapy cliche you know the things that we kind of like react to the most violently we do so not because we're just like simply angry with them but we are kind of like disappointed with them like we put them in a special place in our lives and then they kind of like uh they don't give us the kind of like affection that we deserve, or like that we that we decided we deserve. And then our passion and love for that thing turns into like a complete hatred. And I remember like our back and forth while I was doing the editing for that as well. And I feel I I believe we had this conversation about like, you know, but what vulnerabilities does this kind of like nostalgia bring out in you? Like, maybe we can be more kind of like transparent about that. And, and it worked really well.
1: I think a lot of it is grief. And I think grief is a word that really needs a lot of unpacking and not just like as from the Lebanese experience, but grief as such a a huge experience for not just people on the periphery, but people like just so much. And now with climate grief and the the sort of like inability to think of the future Mm. (laughs) and, you know, terrified of what's to come because there's a lot to sit with, and there's a lot to accept, and there's a lot of sort of defeats, but also potentials of growth, I guess. And so I, I think this is why I naturally lean towards writing it as, a writing this comic as a letter to my very, my best friend back home, uh, Taurit Um because uh, first of all, like, my having left Lebanon now disconnects me from a lot of things, but a lot of it with him. And especially because, especially since shit really started hitting the fan in Lebanon, um, he very, very oddly enough is resilient. You know, he was in Jamezi, like the, the neighborhood right across the port. Like he could have died. He very, very easily, very easily could have died. And I don't know, a few months later when we're talking and I'm still shivering and every sound triggers me and makes me just like, you know, vomit essentially. Uh, To him, it would just sort of like slide off his back a bit. Like, yep, this is what it is. It's shitty, but that's what it is. And so those disconnects really start to form between us. We're very similar growing up and our disposition and the ways we think, but specifically on the issues of emigration, feelings of belonging and feelings of safety and therefore like relations with home because you can't really feel safe at home so I my feelings of home in Beirut have kind of gone where I think he still has uh somehow (laughs) the sort of feelings of homeness there um but more importantly I guess uh, back in 2015 um when I was in university I was having these kind of I wouldn't call them breakdowns, but, uh, I was dealing with a lot of shit and, um, and basically the only way that kind of, the only thing I did that actually helped me was to write letters to taught it. Um, my ex-girlfriend at the time had given me, well, she's still my ex-girlfriend, but like my, um, a friend of mine had given me a typewriter And it was this old Adler or whatever. I had to leave it in Lebanon. I didn't bring it with me. Uh, But yeah, so every single day I would write one letter and it would be this very therapeutic thing where I just like like completely make myself vulnerable. And I noticed that really helped me in formatting this comic as a letter to him, not only because it allowed me to be vulnerable and actually access the emotions and access the hurt and the kind of actual experience and the core of the experience, but it also in a weird way kind of gave me a sense of purpose for what i'm doing because a lot of the things i'm describing have kind of put me and a lot of people in a kind of depressive rut it's kind of internalizing this depressive logic that nothing why write anything i've been having such a fucking hard time writing anything and i know a form of cynicism yeah of of a kind of fatalism of a kind Mm -hmm. of just what's the point of anything like why write a comic like it's not going to make me feel better or it's not going to actually fix the issues or whatever you know um but in writing it as a letter and sticking actually to it you remember these i i really remember and i really appreciate these interactions we had um where you tell me about adding something and i say you know no 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 thought it would understand this like this isn't how i write to him i write this Mm -hmm. way um And the letter does kind of function purely as a letter to him, the comic does function completely addressed to him. Um, I think we did strike the balance where it's still accessible for everybody to read. But the idea is, is that had a kind of purpose because aside from thinking about what is the point of art or what is the point of comics or what am I actually doing here? It's just a letter to a friend that I dearly miss. So I felt like that was value already. Um, so so yeah that's honestly that i don't it's think i knew of, it,
0: I was doing it it reminds me of the old slogan uh the person is political because yeah. you're kind of like reverting back or like reverting deep into like a very personal relationship that you have but a lot of the times these like personal relationships are like a reflection of the world around us anyway so we can actually tell a story without having to kind of like give a political, huge detailed political background about what's happening. We can actually tell a story about about the world around us from just by our kind of like person relationships with each other.
1: No, and I completely agree. And this is actually that's a uh, I, I don't have a motto, but if I did it would be that, that the personal is political and the, mm. yeah basically the personal is political. And that's kind of why i can only really maybe it's an excuse but that's why i think i mostly write in a kind of autobiographical way but that's the thing um,
0: also like why should you have an excuse for that why do you even feel like this is something that needs to be excused
1: oh only because i don't know how much of a choice it is because i just don't feel like i'm very good at fiction uh <laughs> i've tried or at poetry i'm terrible at poetry and um yeah and so i don't know if it's fully a choice or if it's just like that's just what i tend towards and like find easier
0: now you mentioned that you're terrible in poetry actually i find this text to be very poetic by the way like to me it reads like a poem and i was just reading it again just before our interview now um and there is a part at the end i think we had we had kind of had like a conversation about it And you have chosen the specific word like descending into poetry. Like you say, like, I feel like this is descending into poetry. Um, I I thought that was quite interesting. I I have like similar feelings about poetry. Like I usually feel like I don't get it. I've never even like attempted in writing poetry because like, I don't know. It feels too indulgent as a thing that I'm capable of doing. I feel like I'm just going way too deep into myself when I try to write something like that. Um, yeah, I I suppose I'm trying to ask you, like, why do you feel like you descend into poetry, like poetry, is something that you descend into?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of uh, to say about this, um, and not to disparage poetry. I think poetry has so much potential, and so many people are doing amazing things with poetry and can do amazing things with poetry. Um there's definitely an experience of poetry in Beirut that is specific to a kind of English-speaking poetry events in Beirut. And a sort of tendency that I see in arts in general, that's always kind of existed towards abstraction. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not disparaging the whole thing, but for my purposes, and especially with this quote, newly founded urgency, that i feel um yeah i find abstraction uh oftentimes uh unnecessary and frustrating and but 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 kind of a tendency that i have you know what i mean so i feel like our situation not just le- in lebanon and and lebanon's a kind of microcosm for so many things but let's just stick with lebanon because it's the thing i know most It's it's my home it's the you know the place that i've just left and so i'm still really thinking a lot about it we are in such a fuck predicament and i'm now for the last few weeks been hosting this lebanese documentary watch party it's a documentary about the lebanese civil war and yeah and we host these discussions which are just amazing discussions they're fantastic but one thing we've been ta- touching on is the sort of inability to have a coherent narrative for lebanon or to really understand um, in a kind of coherent way. There is no good guy, bad guy. There is no good tendency, bad tendency. Even when you read the history, and as much as I'm trying to get involved with it, one thing we're all constantly doing is reflecting on this period with the mind's eye of this sort of post-October 17 Lebanon, right? As in, we have seen failures. We have seen how like dirty things can get quickly and how messy they can get. And so looking back at 75, looking back in the 70s and earlier, we're constantly thinking, what could we have done or what could have been done? And it just feels faded from the beginning. And it feels so fucked up at the core. And so at the moment, genuinely thinking about what can be done for Lebanon, it's one of the most, this is why the Lebanese are completely burnt out. And I don't see any Lebanese people writing. I mean, I myself cannot write, you know, and I I see that same burnt outness. What's the point, what, what could we write that could clarify things more or the, that could like actually do anything or that even to analyze, that's actually like an analysis worth having. Um, but anyway, um, so the point is, is it's so fucked up that sometimes the only ways you can deal with it are through fiction. And this is in a lot of situations and through poetry. And so i find myself when i'm talking about this I, I i probably saw an example of it now um i end up talking in a kind of ambiguous terms because you can't really understand lebanon without uh, like putting on a kind of <sighs> i burn I'm myself about about say what
0: sorry i was I saying burn
1: myself now.
0: uh you you need to find a way of alienating yourself from it to be able to talk about it. Is that
1: to be able to understand it. And I think being there, I did fictionalize a lot of things. And this is why I have a thousand stories about service drivers, about things that have happened. And I have just a bunch of stories that I love telling um, because they make sense as fiction, but also by their very incomprehensibility. I mean, just the port explosion, like how many, hundreds or or thousands of tons of ammonium nitrate that's been there for six years Mm -hmm. that through all these ministers through all this thing and then the very fact that it happened it's fucked it's impossible to really just hold as like that is a part of reality and so yeah you have to have that disconnect or i feel like If you were far
0: enough removed from it, it might actually be a hilarious story of, like, how this was allowed to happen. Like, there's that aspect of it as well. Like, the surreality of the entire thing is just, like, it's very difficult to, I suppose, find an angle to enter into. Do I approach this as a funny story? Do I approach this as a horror story? Like, is this, like, a Lovecraftian cosmic horror thing? Or, like... Is, is that the kind of thing that is, do I approach this as like a personal essay type of story? Like even the first stage of it, I suppose, like I'm trying to kind of like find relatable experiences. It must be very confusing.
1: It's very confusing. And the more you know about our history, the, the more confusing it gets. And so.
0: That was the next question that I was going to ask because <coughs> relating to history. Oh, uh there's been like this is not the first time that lebanon has been very very complicated it's almost like a complicated country from its design from what i from what i can understand of it and literature has always existed uh it has always i suppose been kind of like a way of sublimating things and also from like our previous discussions with you like i always get the sense that literature has changed very profoundly within this generation it has kind of like that's also the kind of struggle that you're having with this entire nostalgia thing like previous generations have been a lot more comfortable with the ideas of like resilience and nostalgia and like uh a core about lebanon that they want to believe in but it appears that your generation uh are trying to create a new language of trying to deal with this like both, relating to this experience of kind of quote unquote having an affection for this motherland i suppose like I, I, i cringe when i say words like that but having that affection but also having like a profound anger against it as well so this is the first time it's a historic moment where this kind of like these two the clash of these two sentiments are being expressed in an entirely new way
1: no se, and i and you see a lot of it from a lot of writings and um i think i think name's Eli Dagher has a short animated film called Waves 95 there's a lot of this conflict and um again to 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 bring up Joey Ayub, i think he wrote an essay actually for you i think for Mangal Media uh, or it was published on Mangal Media where is um just the title itself
0: Resilient Broken um,
1: we're not resilient, we're broken. Mm. And and it's just that equation doesn't fit really anymore. And um yeah, I don't know. There's there's definitely a lot to think about in terms of the sort of intergenerational splits in Lebanon. Uh and it definitely a lot has changed since October 17. And there's sort of a, a new consciousness, but but yeah, this is why you saw these sort of clashes of ideas on on in the revolutionary squares at the time. I talk about the phoenix. So the phoenix that you see in the comic. At first, I was taken in by it because let me tell you the story. Um, it was probably a week, ten days into the uprisings, mm-hmm. and this is historic. This is unprecedented. No one had ever really. We speak to each other in small circles, but. To be out on the streets for such a prolonged time, to be saying the things we're saying, to be having these feelings that like, so for so long, we're closing this thing of nothing's ever going to change in Lebanon. You know, we have the same fucking assholes, the same warlords for like 40 years. The Jumblot family have been like big, a big feudal Druze family for like 400 years or whatever. Same with the Arslan, same with whatever. So yeah, it's really hard to overstate what it really felt like at the time. And one of the things that we did uh, was build tents in Azariyyah and in Sahar Shahada, the Martyr Square. And some of these tents were places to sell, some of them were parties, some of them were like stands for organizations, some of them were just spaces to hold meetings, right? And it was amazing. It was beautiful. It was inspiring. And it's one of those things that if you talk to people who were there, this is the thing that they're still holding on to through all of the shit. Those, those memories of the first few days, the first few weeks. So on the ninth day, about, I'm not exactly sure, I think seventh or ninth, um, partisans from the Harakat Amal and Hezbollah came down and destroyed, and just like rampage, and with the collaboration of the um, interior uh, like security forces, like this is documented, um, went down and destroyed all the tents, burnt shit down, created created havoc, terrified everybody who was there. And I went down uh, that day. I don't. I never rushed towards danger, but this day, for some reason, it was just like I'm going. I saw it on TV and I was like, oh, I'm going. I don't know why the fuck I did that. But so I remember the carnage. I remember seeing, not the carnage, but like the fi- the people putting out fires, the melted plastic, the tents completely collapsed, everyone crying. Um, again, you find yourself in these situations where you can't really just accept that this is reality. It just doesn't mm-hmm. fit. And get this, I saw... Um, A plastic box, like a big plastic Tupperware, uh filled with books and pens and whatever, melted. And on the floor, there's a small children's book that's slightly burnt on the sides, but you can still read the title. And the title says, I am not afraid of anything. Mm. And the fucking book is about a girl who just like, I'm not afraid of spiders, I'm not afraid of thunder or whatever. And just like I cried so hard <laughs> because and but it, it's just so fucking poetic and i hate it you know what i mean like this kind of like i don't want poetry right now i just want to cry but like it's constantly there because beirut is this like disgusting poetry generator and again the worst most intense vulgar whatever poetry but poetry nonetheless um and so anyway some guy some artist decided to take all the polls from the broken tents and build a phoenix and i remember at the time thinking wow that's actually really cool um little did i know obviously eventually i'll, I'll grow to fucking hate that phoenix and hate all the symbolism um not just because it's like a kind of bourgeois distraction for me um but like also how symbolism can really turn really ugly really quick and we started to see that So
0: does that that symbolism mean because like the phoenix is kind of like a like a national symbol for Lebanon as well.
1: I don't know if it's a national symbol, I know it's like it's a it's a symbol culturally like in our. um, Like poetry or whatever. Um, But it's not just the phoenix um one aspect of the of protest that i hated so much that i was so critical of from the very beginning one well, not the beginning because some of times it was quite cool and fun uh was the loud music was these trucks that would come and just like dominate the space and monopolize the space and blast out this bullshit foda music um which would always have the most like banal lyrics, you know, and always about oh. like Lebanon's going to come back. who just so much. Yeah. That it gets obnoxious and nauseating. It's just like enough. Um, and again, I don't want to come across as someone who just hates poetry or symbolism. A lot of the times it's super important, but there is a sort of imposed symbolism. Um, like, I don't know, there's a symbolism of Killunyani Kilon," which is the sort of main chant of the of the revolution, of like all of them means all of them, which really helps in kind of as a sort of political analysis. But stuff like the Phoenix, there's so many disgusting, truly, truly disgusting statues and monuments for the port blast. Um, and that's really when me and Hisham start to think about this and this is when we were working on a different project but we're still in lebanon and you just have to live with it you know it's just there and like the only symbolism i'd want is the remnants of the port blast to remind us like what they did but other than that i don't want a statue pouring water about how lebanon's going to come back and and again the main point is that this same resilience and whatever is completely co-opted by the political class Mm. almost entirely
0: it's almost i mean it serves their interest i suppose because it's almost as though like the people are kind of making a willing (laughs) statement saying that our tolerance for resistance has just increased i mean our tolerance for uh, horrendous stuff has just increased so (laughs) it's almost like an invitation to bring on the next horrible thing because like we are we have been prepared for what's going on and we are prepared for the next thing that's going to happen to us. So I I suppose for a political class who is behaving in this irresponsible way, it's like an excellent way for them to say, Oh, you know, we made a couple of mistakes, but our people are resilient and strong anyway. So like we might as well make a couple of more mistakes.
1: Yeah. 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 And you hear it in their language. And that's the, these people are sociopaths. They're, they're, completely divorced from reality and when you hear them speak um and this is why sometimes even when i'm talking about them all i can do is satire or like make fun of them and i feel like most people uh, just tend towards whatever um uh, comedy because it's so ridiculous and they're living in a completely different world and we have our billionaire prime minister who says and our pain is his pain and he feels us or whatever um but also, yeah, there's so much of this rhetoric across the board about how we can handle it, and this isn't anything, and we've been through worse. And um...
0: I suppose this is exactly also, what, like, I although I hate quoting Marx in any context, especially this particular quote, like when um, when he says that religion is the opium of the masses. Pretty much, this is this is what it means.
1: Yeah i think with lebanon the added factor of this sectarian clientelism mm. that necessitates people leaning towards whatever for their own material uh survival in a lot of cases that then creates these like micro like power structures across the country um which genuinely i see as the only way forward which is like providing alternatives of actually anyway it's very complicated i hate talking about lebanese politics so much because the one thing that you said just then about how it paves the way for the next uh, crisis or the next shock, um, we start talking about accountability. And so there's a really weird, unexplainable thing that I think everyone who was in Beirut in uh, and, and August 4th, a lot of us felt this. I've only ever, like, I think Lina Monzer said this once, and she's a Lebanese writer who's just fantastic. We all knew, we all sort of knew. No, you, you can never actually fucking know that the port, a place that's like a kind of invisible place of the city, weirdly enough, a, a place that's been invisibilized. Because actually, if you look at the history, the port is very significant in, in Lebanon and Beirut's history in general. And why is the port there in specific? You know, non-junior and troblos or sur But anyway this kind of invisible place I've never even thought about. Fucking explodes, destroys a third of the city, a fifth of the city, kills 200 people, displaces whatever, traumatizes us all me. For some reason, we kind of knew something was gonna happen. No one knew that, no one knew when. But even me and everyone I've spoken to has these split second thoughts that happened right after the explosion. And for me, immediately, it was a, a ton of analysis of like literally in the first like two seconds, it was like, oh, this is because I heard an explosion over there and an explosion here. Oh, maybe there's something over there and they're attacking here because they're going to announce the results of the tribunal for who assassinated Rafi Hariri. And I live next to Saad Hariri's resident or former resident. So maybe it's an attack there. But at the same time, the one of the first things that popped in my head was Akhiran it's finally here not in anticipation but as in this is it it started i think everyone has a different idea of it but this feeling is so impossible to describe but yeah so because because and as we saw it happened and it just we had to move on or we had not we had to move on i mean a lot of people are still like protesting and yeah like this is like great work but In terms of just like the daily life there, we just have to accept that they bombed our city and we just. And so, again, the next one, whatever, if there's a another invasion in Israel or there's another clash between here or there. So it's this perpetuation of this cycle of violence. And, yeah, you're right. A big part of it is the fact that there's no accountability because there's no ownership of like this violence. And and a part of it is that there's constantly blame pushed on everybody else. And and a part of it is pushed on people. And it's this masterful gaslighting, where it's like you can handle it, you know, mm. like oh, you can you can survive this one. You survive the civil war, you survive this. we will will cross this.
0: I think the peculiar thing about the sense of like uh, predicting that something is going to happen is that it works two ways. On one hand, it's kind of it works as a kind of subversive mentality against the power structure that tells you that everything is okay, because like you deep down know that something horrible is about to happen. But on the other way, on the other way, it works as a kind of, I suppose, like a tool of submission, because like, as soon as that thing happens. hmm. I imagine you also feel a sense of relief, because there's this horrible thing that you're waiting for it to happen. And now it has happened. Ah, so that was it. So I suppose it could lead to that sense as well. So this was it. Okay, I mean, it has happened. And it was really bad. I'm in one piece. I'm glad that's over. I mean, I suppose it could, it could have that effect as well. No.
1: So that brings up something kind of funny that I don't think I've ever really mentioned to anybody, which is, I mean, no, this was a big thing on Lebanese Twitter at the time. Mm-hmm. After the explosion, almost every single fucking day there was something else. A generator exploded there. A weapons, uh-huh. um, a munition, blew up in the south. A massive fire in the same port that just exploded, that like literally covered Beirut a huge plume of smoke. Gunfire over there, whatever. It was daily, daily, daily. And what would happen for me? is once it happens once whatever happens happens and we all clock it as like that's the thing that's going to happen today yeah. we can move on we live the- and so this is why for me i really became kind of an insomniac. i mean i always kind of was but because those things would usually happen during the day if something were to happen it would happen during the day and so i almost took like ownership like at the night it was i was able to be free of any of this worry or whatever and so I ended up, at the time I was living with Hisham, sorry, I feel like we should get closer to the comic because uh, Hisham uh, is the, the artist. He's like the second half of Disney number six. And um, we stayed up so many long nights and that's all we did. And that's what was so painful about the electricity cuts, especially in summer, mm. because I couldn't sleep early too. And so I was up late, sweating, miserable. I wonder how all of this is going to come across to, like, a non-Lebanese listener, because...
0: I mean, I'm a non-Lebanese listener.
1: I know, but we've had these conversations, and, and like, uh, you 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 speak to Lebanese people, so... I'm, and, like... But, honestly, genuinely, what happens is that I feel kind of stuck in my situation sometimes, and stuck in my uh, headspace, or, you know... I don't know, sometimes the- I
0: feel like I can't overstress to you, like, the extent to which this is kind of, like, relatable... I mean, not perhaps to 100% kind of like, oh, I know exactly what you're doing. Like, this is the thing that always happens when the question of relatability comes up. Like, you know, when somebody tells you of like a bad experience, like it is bad manners to just kind of like jump in and say, oh, this has happened to me. So like, I have a comparable experience. Like on the one hand, it kind of obstructs them from like talking about their own experiences in their authentic way. But on the other hand, it's a way of kind of, because everybody, I I, I imagine a lot of people at least, like when they talk about difficult experiences, they actually, we, I suppose, like to hear that somebody else can relate to it. So I suppose like, I, I mean, for example, a lot of the examples that you talk about, like burnt tents and like the police kind of like, or like security forces attacking a place where people were peacefully protesting. Uh, I mean, I have similar experiences. Not the same violence, of course. Like, I don't want to uh, make those exchange ex- experiences kind of like interchangeable. Uh, but like the Gezi protests and a lot of the a lot of the feeling of feeling really excited about being in this place, but finding some really problematic things that are kind of related to this uh, expressions of nationalism that kind of like translate to here. That like I find to be extremely relatable as well. Um, so I think a lot of non Lebanese listeners, uh, would find relatable things. And I think even the parts that are not exactly like translated, I think we have a lot to learn from each other, like while discussing it and putting it into context.
1: Yeah. And you hit on something that's actually, uh, another core, um, thing that I think about when I write. And it's, I think I mentioned to you when I first approached it with this script, um, for a letter home. Um, which is basically that if for nothing else, this piece can be cathartic Mm. for me and for other people. And I found that this is why I'm so interested in the idea of the personal as political, because first of all, we're all just humans. And so like we can relate at that experience. Second of all, it, so it allows you to connect other people at that human like empathetic level. But sometimes, um, uh, how do I explain this? Um, yeah, no, okay. Honestly, sometimes it is just giving name to something. Mm. I found myself incredibly like in terrible situations and just reading something and relating to it. And it just helps me cope. Mm. But more than that, I think Lebanon is such a good example of how we cannot fix our own problems or as in we need international solidarity we need regional solidarity we really need internationalism and i m- most of the world does you know and and this is something that's just so important and i know it's on on your mind and i know it's on a lot of people's mind but so yeah by making myself vulnerable and sort of saying like hey you know i i don't really know what the fuck what i'm talking about but like i've been through this stuff and obviously i'm a bit critical so i you know check and it's not like everything that's immediately my experience is therefore fits into a perfect political analysis but oftentimes what you find is that the personal complicates the political you know and definitely my experience organizing um and being in the revolution i mean before i used to have this idea that things will only get so bad until like the people burst out you know and people still think this and i've met people here and it really is fucking alienating When I hear white Europeans say like, oh, people just need to be pushed a bit more until the breaking point. And it's like, bro, if you get to the breaking point, it's too late. You are going to be fucking exhausted and burnt out and unable to organize. I remember that kind of
0: a discourse. I remember a lot of that kind of discourse from American communists and lefties talking about Donald Trump, how it's kind of like an excellent tool for accelerating the inevitable proletarian revolution. And I feel like just listening to that and... Just the kind of like the bombast of that argument, the just the extreme kind of like the meganess of everything. Just to me, just feels so unique, almost like parochially American. You know what? Yeah. Everything has to be huge. It's got to be big. It's like almost the same as Donald Trump. It's like you have this like fantasized revolution in your mind that you don't mind Donald Trump coming to power and torturing people with that, with his kind of like tyranny so that you can get your like fantastical like Hobbitland revolution. It, to me, that seems that seems completely illogical.
1: Yeah, 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 no. And so before the revolution, genuinely I was a, a massive Chomsky fan and and Zizek and all these people. So Zizek is very famous for having said, you know, Trump you know, not, not because I like him or whatever, but I'm not going to do my Zizek <laughs> impersonation on this podcast.
0: And, so, but, on and uh, so on and so on. And so on <laughs> and so
1: on. <laughs> this is perfect. Um, but uh, to his, okay, now anyway, point is is that, yes, and so it was only until I was on the street I was hearing people chant, like my people, and I don't have a very strong idea of my people or a very strong sense of identity and belonging, but that was something I was way more disconnected from years ago. And so finding myself feeling like I'm connected to this community and mm-hmm. feeling Lebanese and seeing what people are talking about. First of all, they're talking in Arabic. I was raised in English. My Arabic is pretty weak. And this is something a lot of people noted, that there's so much written in Arabic. And so many people are talking about like, wow, I haven't read this much Arabic since Breve, since high school. Um, so even you know, speaking in Arabic, reading in Arabic, but also engaging in Arabic discourses. Nobody's talking about Chomsky. Nobody's talking about Zizek or the IMF or whatever. They're talking about Nabi Hibir. They're talking about this. They're talking about the, the price. They're talking about like public spaces, you know, things that in my kind of meta gaze did not have understanding of, but through personal experience, through actually being engaged on the ground, through talking to people. And again, I come from quite a bourgeois family. And so I remember being on the streets. The first few weeks basically and being like this isn't for me like as in my demands are not at the center of this That that's perfectly fine is my point as in it shouldn't be but as in i have no idea what people are talking about what are the discourses i had to learn so much and it was really important learning but that is how the personal complicates the political in that way and then how do i engage and then then it became like learning Arabic and rereading Arabic and and going back to the language um, became a kind of priority as well, because ultimately what's the point of any of these discourses? If we're sitting in cafes talking about Marx or or Chomsky or whoever, what's that actually going to do specifically for the people who most need to hear this stuff or how we need to be engaging and organizing with?
0: I have a question. Did you, after like you've started engaging with this kind of like uh, this world of literature that's written in Arabic, did you feel like those problems were also your problems? Or did you feel like you still kept the same problems that you've had before, but you kind of felt like you have to convince all these other people that these are Like, Does that does my question make
1: sense? As in do they still have to think about the IMF?
0: No, sure. as as oh. in like, okay, so you had this kind of like abstract, I don't know, like Marxian or like Chomsky inspired troubles that were in your head but as you kind of entered this actual political struggle that was around you, did you feel like, oh, wow, like, because that, that's kind of what happened to me in different contexts. Oh, wow, the, the things that I thought were the problem were just kind of like silly games. And now that I'm in actual struggle, like I feel like there's much more immediate problems. And I've actually distracted myself from these actual problems by kind of like entrapping me myself in this kind of like theoretical abstract world was that did that did that lead to an enlightenment in you
1: no for sure for sure this is why i said the word complicate and not replace because i do like also talking about politics with a capital p and politics with the lowercase p right as in there is this grand politics game and the imf is a huge concern and the us and israel you know what i mean this this sub it's there to our south and they're very present and zionism you know what i mean that's like otherwise like a big thing but it's actually very much so exists and very much mm-hmm. so a problem and very much so something that we struggle against um but even if i wanted to talk to people about this i wouldn't be able to because first of all i couldn't speak arabic at the time and secondly yeah no one's talking about it so it's like weird to come in and I I met anarchists and I met communists who would go around and being like, and just starting by talking about Emma Goldman or whoever. And it's just like, bro, like, where are you? Where do you think you are? Or like talking about stuff like transhumanism. And it's just like, yeah. And I had to learn a lot also from people in the US and sort of like, like people like Bell Hooks and people like Audre Lorde and, and people like Franz Fanon, where like, because genuinely, if we are to think that this is a revolution, and I know a lot of people disagree on the terminology because none of the things really change, obviously mentally and, and sort of like collectively, there's sort of this like unhinging and a new way of thinking I think has really revolutionary. Um, and if you examine the history, we really need a kind of radical shift and 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 you know what I mean, like no one's talking about decolonialism um but anyway, but even if I wanted to talk about any of these things, or bring them up at a meeting um you have to meet people where they're at which i think is bell hooks and yeah part of that is literally speaking Arabic and opening in discussions but also talking to people about what they're concerned with because you're not going to go into a place where someone's like you know literally just and so I've been working for a while um I founded helped found a, a queer mutual aid group in Beirut sorry it's set in my place in Beirut but we are queer people all across Lebanon. Um, and yeah, I don't know if once you once you start listening to the concerns and struggles of like a Syrian trans woman refugee in Lebanon, you know what I mean? it just totally changes like the your ideas of priority, of urgency. Mm-hmm. Um, and it adds to it. I think it doesn't necessarily replace it because the IMF and that did enter into our discourse took up to be fair um with especially with the euro bonds in march 2020 um because lebanon is this really fucked up debt economy um and so do we default on our debt or do we pay that whatever um but yeah you sort of have to add to that like a real If A, if you want to just understand what's happening, but B, if you actually want to be an actor and actually want to organize and do something, you do have to work at a very local level to really understand what people are even talking about. Because if you come in and you're only talking about these states and these whatever that no one else is talking about, you just seem foreign and weird and kind of too online, which is basically a big criticism I have of a lot of like hard lefties in the what's it called who aren't interested in mutual aid, who aren't just interested in like community organizing. Um, but yeah, and so I think it, it complicates things. It problematizes them. And ultimately I think it expands. And I think this is exactly what we talk about when you talk about intersectionality. Um, and yeah, the complex, the, the, the several layers, the several power structures that we're dealing with Again, in Lebanon, but this is obviously relatable anywhere because we're talking capitalism, imperialism. Again, bell hooks, capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchy. I'm not going to go to everyone in Lebanon and be like, that's the problem. I have this in my head. And obviously, again, that problematizes the problem because Chomsky doesn't use this term. <laughs> and um, and yeah. Even, and when some,
0: like, even when talking about something like imperialism now, uh, the, the question arises like, all imperialisms, or like selective imperialism, you know. Like, I I don't think the word like being I'm against imperialism does not have this. it's just kind of rings really hollow.
1: No, oh, yeah, no. It's a big red flag when someone calls themselves an anti. It's a shame. <laughs> yeah, but if someone says anti-imperialist, I sort of go like, I have to, you know. It's like white people and like putting like pro-Palestine, and that's it, and then like you start with uh sure enough they're like asset supporters or whatever
0: they might oh, turn out not to be but like i just don't have the patience of like asking them you know like are you aware Just like i've come to a point in life where like w- like whatever politics why people kind of like express i'm like good for you and <laughs> just like move on no
1: exactly and that's another thing actually that's a good point the people with whom i have these conversations with or that i I find want to have these conversations and a lot of white people but also even in lebanon um usually i just find these aren't the people i want to be discussing Mm. with or organizing with like they're not allies or they're not actually really located in the real in in reality i can
0: sympathize with their confusions but i'm just not curious in their position basically
1: no, I know, but I, I found that they're just so much more present to spend time with, and to org- and, and different people to be organizing with, um, that I think creates so much more of an impact at a much level, like even at a very local level. But yeah, I, I found those conversations to be utterly, like, completely useless. And we're talking about I've been in hundreds of these conversations at like Cafe Eunice and Hamra. And I used to be so indulgent and talk about, ah, when the revolution comes, I will be a writer that, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And then the revolution came and I was just like, oh, I don't know shit. I don't know anything. Like, I really just have to learn from the bottom up. And yeah, yeah. And so again, like, I don't want to be organizing with people who only talk politics, capital P. Um, and yeah and and that's actually a big problem but if we go back to this original point about poetry um i'm constantly thinking about who i'm addressing when i write and like who am i organizing with or what's going on and i'm hyper aware of this all the time About me writing in english you know what i mean like the people that i'm going to be discussing with in english and because english is the only language i can write in um like who am i really talking to and whatever Uh, A book recently came out by a really, really good researcher, Leah Bukhater, about the labor history in Lebanon. Um, And I know she has nothing to do with it, but it it costs $90, which is like now in Lebanon, like three times the minimum wage. Uh, And it's about the labor history, you know? So we're talking about the working class. And it's in English. And so there are these several layers where it's like, who is this addressed to? Again, this has nothing to do with Leigh Bukhater. I know this is more structural because I know her work is great and her research is really important in terms of understanding that kind of lost and erased history that's been erased by this history of the civil war uh, that's always fated to have been or whatever. Uh, You know, Most people don't know about the labor struggles in the 70s in Lebanon and the continuing labor struggles and the co-optation by the regime or by the Lebanese state uh, political elite um so i have this immediacy that i feel this urgency and so this is why i like to write more directly but also i like to write in a simple language and i just feel like too much is lost in poetry for my purposes because i see a lot of intersection a lot of um art as having a lot of necessity at the moment not just for satire and not just for information and whatever but genuinely we are fucked And we really need to be imaginative and creative about how we get out of these situations. And who best to do this, but artists and writers and whatever. And here I know it's a bit of like a socialist idea of art, but again, I I can't divorce my feelings of urgency. And I know Hisham does too. Hisham's actually doing research at the moment uh, in Belgium uh, on this exact idea of how can we combine uh, art with urgency and political urgency uh, that we're all feeling and that we have been feeling a complete disconnect since we've come to Europe and just found how indulgent and frivolous so many of these conversations and practices are. I mean, he's an art school. And so he's constantly faced with these people who want to do this like very strange, abstract, we all know this type of this like very overly abstract thing where it's so meta and it's so post-ironic that like it's just suffocating and boring. And again, who is this for, if not for you and for your kind of like masqueratory, um self-indulgent kind of you know specialness? Like only artists can understand this. And it's it's very frustrating. And so he's been reading a lot about things about like pedagogy of the oppressed and theater mm-hmm. of the oppressed and and generally how we combine art and urgency and political action and movement, And um, so like our comics, we always try to make them as accessible as possible. Uh, this one, we're working on a series now called Thawra Bikil Bildin, which we originally wanted to be in Arabic, but we really couldn't find the money. <laughs> uh, and we found a pretty good outlet in English uh, and hopefully eventually we'll be able to translate them. Mm -hmm. But the whole point is trying to, like, bring to the surface a lot of what is essentially erased histories and erased movements. Our first episode is about the local coordination committees in Syria, which, you know, most people think about Syria, and they just think it's always been a civil war, and it's always been a two-sides, and there are Islamist kind of movements or whatever. And obviously, it's in the regime's favor, and in those warring factions' favor to erase this kind of original um, revolution. Mm-hmm. I think Yasin al-Haj Saleh described this very well um, when he talks about the Duma Four, um, which is, let me pull that up right now, because I thought it was a beautiful I, like phrase.
0: I think we are kind of approaching actually to the end of our conversation slowly. Oh, okay. Yeah, time flies by when you're having fun
1: yeah the original liberatory values of the revolution and so yeah anyway i I, I do just because i think i sort of came full circle there um so much of what i think is really necessary is to be accessible is to be to know who you're speaking to and to speak mm. to the right people because i think we're so distracted by a lot of bullshit online discussions and debates where we sort of get distracted from who we really should be talking to mm. and and as artists especially And so for me, sharing my personal experience uh, as a kind of cathartic way of reaching out to people, but also in explaining this, not to take up space, but to be like, this is reality, Um, that I think I can weave into other things. And I think in the comic I do do. Um, And so, yeah.
0: I think that's a really good place to end on like the entire question of kind of um, what we could do with our creativity to kind of like engage in some kind of meaningful political action. Um, And I feel like a letter home is kind of very successful in terms of bringing that kind of like personal aspect and the urgency, it just seems like, like, it's not even kind of like calculated to have some kind of like political impact or whatever. It's just like, your way of existence, you and Hisham, the way that you exist is in itself political and as that bubbles out, it just kind of like surfaces. uh, The the politics of it just kind of like reveals itself. And I think that is a good place to end on. I am personally super excited to see uh, this project coming and just I haven't like I haven't seen a printed copy of it yet. I am hoping to get my hands on it in about two weeks or so fingers crossed. And uh, Great. thank you very much for this conversation. I mean, like we, th- this happens a lot in our conversations with Ayman all the time, like we kind of like, go all over the place. And but I just find that exhilarating. <laughs> I hope it was for like, whoever's listening out there.
1: <clears throat> I've got to be honest, I kind of forgot we were recording because it just <laughs> like oh, cool. one of our conversations. And so I may have slipped up a bit there or like um said a few went on so. a few tangents that I wasn't that I didn't know where it would end up.
0: I think I think that just made the conversation more interesting, to be honest. And I, I I've don't. I've done I've done what I could to kind of like steer the conversation in a particular direction, but I just kind of like decided to uh decided to let it flourish by itself.
1: I noticed, I know. I, I I apologize, but uh, yeah, that's no, 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 <laughs>
0: It was a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for everyone for listening. Thank you. So long.